0: Good afternoon. We're going to look again at the book of Revelation. If you want to turn there to Revelation chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 4 through 8. I had planned to cover all of 4 through 8 this afternoon, but in writing, I realized I'm going to get through most of verse (laughs) 5. So it's all right. I wanted to get through the whole thing because there is an inclusio around the whole thing, a bracketing of who was and who is and who is to come. Both in verse 4 and in verse 8. So it's a sort of logical unit, but we'll look at it over the next two weeks. Due to our time constraints for the purpose of prayer, we're trying to keep these sermons a bit shorter. So, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and give thanks. Father, we give thanks that you have by your Spirit superintended this word. You've given it, this letter, this revelation to our Lord Jesus, who's delivered it to John by way of an angel and visions. We pray that we would receive this letter as what it is, a word from our triune Lord, that we would trust your word, believe what you say, rest in you and your work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sadly, as a culture, we seldom write letters anymore. We toss out texts or emails briefly, but the old handwritten letter as a form is not something that we often participate any longer You rarely get one. I suppose the upside to that is when you do get a handwritten letter from someone, you immediately sort of have your attention grabbed. You jump right in and you want to read it and you want to see what they say. Particularly, you want to read and hear what this person has to say to you if the author is someone whom you really trust, whom you esteem. Then you're ready to read this letter and pay close attention to it quite quickly So imagine a letter that comes to you from the triune Lord, a letter written by him. Imagine the God of redemption, if you will, the God of creation, providence, and redemption, writing you a letter. That's essentially what's happening in the book of Revelation, The church is gathered to hear a letter read to them. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. The one reading aloud would be the appointed reader of Scripture in the gathered congregation, perhaps the preacher of the word who's reading aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, that would be the congregation, and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Now this is a letter from the Apostle John. Look at verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And when we get this letter from the Apostle John, we'll pick up more on John and his circumstances in the writing of it next two weeks. But for today, I want to focus on the ultimate author of the letter. Who's the ultimate author here? John is the one by whom we receive it, but ultimately, who is the author? Look at Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants— the things that must soon take place. So this is a revelation given to us by Jesus Christ. God gave it to Jesus, who then gave it to us. And Jesus did that by giving it to an angel who gave it to John. And now we have this letter, and he gave it to us in visions or symbols by which we might hear from our triune Lord. So look again at verse four. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. It's a letter that contains the words of our triune Lord. So we want this afternoon to learn a bit more about this letter. We know it's a prophecy or visions given in letter form because of the way it's addressed here. And I want to consider two points with regard to this letter today. We'll really pick up the second point in part today and in full next week. But I want to begin considering those two points or two parts. The first question that I want to answer tonight is To whom is the Lord writing? And the second question is What does the Lord say to the one to whom he's writing? So, to whom he is writing, and what does he say? So, let's consider those two questions. First, to whom is the Lord writing? I want to ask two questions, if you will, under this one question. So if the major banner question here is, to whom is he writing? I want to ask two questions about that audience. First, who is the audience? And second, what is the audience's circumstance? So who is the audience and what are their circumstances? So let's deal with who the audience is. Look at Revelation 1-4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. It's to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, this is a reference to Asia Minor. How do we know that? Look down at Revelation 11. Saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These are real historical cities in the geographic area of Asia Minor. And these are seven churches that are laid out in an order that you would have taken on a kind of circular route from church to church. So it's as if we receive this letter, this book of Revelation, this prophetic vision from John, that ultimately is our triune Lord speaking to us. And John is to take this whole book, and it's to go from church to church to church in a circular pattern in Asia Minor. And this whole book is to be read in their hearing and received by them. And the use of the seven churches here is a synecdoche. Do you guys know what a synecdoche is? It's using a part for a whole. So the synecdoche, using a part for a whole, is what we're getting at with the use of the seven churches. G.K. Beale says it this way. The seven historical churches are viewed as representative of all the churches in Asia Minor. In other words, there are more than seven churches in Asia Minor, but these seven are viewed as representative of all the churches in Asia Minor, and probably, he says, and I think probability is quite high here, probably by extension the church universal. How do we know that? Are we just making that sort of thing up? How do we know it's symbolic or a part being used for a whole greater than itself? Well, first, because of the symbolic use of the number seven to signal completeness throughout the book of Revelation, this is... So since the creation was completed in seven days, right? We have a completion of the creation week. And throughout the book of Revelation, this number seven symbolically stands for completeness or perfection. So look at verse four, chapter one, verse four, and the last phrase in verse four. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne, which I'll show you as a reference to the Holy Spirit. Look at Revelation 1:12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Now we're told here that those seven golden lampstands are symbolic for the seven churches. Look at Revelation 1 and verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars. The seven stars is a symbol for the seven angels to the seven churches. Look at Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5. We'll return to this text again a little bit when we deal with the Holy Spirit more. Chapter 4 and verse 5. From the throne, this is the scene in heaven. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So now we have the seven spirits of God, the seven torches of fire that are burning, Revelation 5 and verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Look at Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Another kind of imagery for the Holy Spirit. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Revelation 10 and verse 3. The angel's holding the little scroll and calls out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. The seven thunders sounded. Revelation 12 and verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, it's referencing Satan, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Revelation 15 in verse 1, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. Go to Revelation 15 in verse 6, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. So see, we continue to hear about the seven plagues, and they have, they'll have. they go on to talk about the seven bowls. Verse 7, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. Look at Revelation 17 and verse 9. This calls for a mind of wisdom, this revelation about the great prostitute and the beast. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. You guys see this repeated use of this number. It's a number that is referencing, the number seven is referencing a kind of completeness. It's a part representing a whole. Second, and that's consistent throughout the book of Revelation, that's one of the reasons why we think the reference to the seven churches is a reference not only to the seven churches that are named, but all the churches, really in Asia Minor, and really a reference to the church universal. But there are more reasons. Here's a second reason. The judgment and salvation in the book of Revelation culminates in a global event of consummation with global judgments and the seals, trumpets, and bowls, and global salvation and the return of Christ. So the seven churches that receive this letter, this prophecy, are receiving it with warnings and comforts attached to a global judgment and a global salvation. Thus we know it has extension beyond these seven churches. Third, we believe the whole universal church is symboled Because the comforts and warnings are given to Christians in more than one passage in Revelation from every tribe and tongue and nation. In fact, every tribe and tongue and nation are warned and comforted with regard to the reading and keeping of this book. Look at Revelation 22 in the epilogue. So if you will, if Revelation 1, 1 1-3 is the prologue, let's look at the epilogue and verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. That they may enter the city by the gates, outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Fourth, The warnings and the comforts of the seven letters to the seven churches all conclude with warnings to all the churches. So each letter concludes with warnings to every other church which is receiving this in a circular pattern. So let's see that. Look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. You'll see this at the end of every letter to the seven churches. Verse 7 of chapter 2, this is a letter to the church in Ephesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a letter to the church at Ephesus that's to be heard by all the churches, namely the seven churches in this cycle, which I'm arguing is a kind of part signaling a whole or a complete number of the universal church. Look at chapter 2, the letter to the church at Smyrna and verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then the church at Pergamum, chapter 2 and verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The letter to Thyatira Look at verse 29 of chapter 2. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The letter to Sardis, look at chapter 3 and verse 6. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The letter to Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 13. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The letter to Laodicea, look at verse 22 of chapter 3. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You guys following the pattern there? While each letter is written to an individual historical church, it is not the case that each letter is merely for that church to hear and to heed. These letters compose a kind of single message for the church in every age. So while this letter is literally a circular letter sent to these seven churches in Asia Minor, it is not merely for them. It is for the church in every age. The Spirit has given it for us as well. That leads to a further question about the churches. What is their circumstance? So, what are the circumstances of the churches? The Lord did not compose this letter filled with visions to be sent into a vacuum. So it's like, I just like to show you some visions of some things that have no context in which I'm speaking into. The Lord is speaking into their circumstances. So, what were they? There were real circumstances the churches were really facing and that churches will continue to face throughout history. They were facing tribulations from the Roman Empire. Now, depending on when you date the book of Revelation, they were facing those persecutions either from Nero or most scholars favor that they're suffering them under Domitian. They were facing tribulations, not only from the Roman empire, but from the Jews. What do I mean by that? You may not be aware of this, but there was only one nation in the Roman empire that had, if you will, the freedom of religion in the first century. And that was the Israelites. They refused to worship Caesar or false gods, and so they were free not to do so. And in the early part of the Christian movement in the first century, the Christians are, if you remember, gathering in Plainman's Colonnade, going into the synagogues and teaching. There is quite an active synagogue life, even for the early Christians. As persecution kicks up, they are pressed into homes and scattered about to various nations, But they enjoy quite a bit of religious freedom for some time because the Roman Empire just thinks of them as another group of the Jews. But the Jews are quite clear by that. I mean, Israel is quite clear that they want to make sure that they distance themselves from the Christians, those who follow Jesus of Nazareth those who do not believe. I mean, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews. They want to distance themselves. And as they do, there's a kind of growing denial of the freedom of religion that the Christians once had with the Jews that comes their way. So that they begin increasingly expected to bow the knee to Caesar and profess him as Lord, which they refuse to do. So they're facing tribulations from the Roman Empire. They're facing tribulations from those Jews who refuse Christ. They're facing tribulation or economic consequences from their pagan neighbors if they're not going to participate in the religious festivals that are quite tied up with the economy of their pagan neighbors they're going to lose out on a lot of economic well-being and you see that coming through they were also facing apostasy they watched friends walk away after false teachers getting caught up with the teachings of jezebel if you will you hear about or the nicolaitans you'll hear about these kind of references There's a rise of false doctrine among them and an apostasy or the leaving of the church. So, you have, if you will, the pressures from without, the tribulations from without that are causing suffering and persecution, and the tribulations from within that are causing suffering and really temptation. So, if you will, their church that's going through tribulations from the world and temptations to compromise with the world, that's their circumstance. We're either in tribulation from the world or we, if you will, give up on the Christian race and compromise to the temptations that the world brings to our door. And so they're suffering with both of those. How do we know that? Look at Revelation 1 and verse 9. We'll look at a few passages here to establish that. Revelation 1 and verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the what? Tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Listen, patient endurance is, is never the kind of language you use when things are just going great, <laughs> right? I feel right now there's ash in the sky for weeks, it seems to happen in the last few years. I feel like I'm patiently enduring the ash. I'm not thinking to myself, oh, this is grand. Can't wait for it to go away. And I feel like I'm patiently enduring the governing authorities who refuse to do the deforestation necessary to prevent this from happening. Most of us know it didn't happen most of our lives and because we deforested and now it's happening because we refuse to do it. And so we patiently endure that. It's not grand. So they're patiently enduring what? Tribulation from the Roman empire, from Israel, from apostates, false teachers. They're patiently enduring. Look at chapter two and verse four, the letter to Ephesus. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. In other words, there's a sort of endurance that's starting to be given up on. There's a temptation to compromise with the world that's growing. We'll look at that in more depth later. Look at Revelation 2 in verse 9 and 10. This is to the church at Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You can see this kind of tribulation they're facing. Look at chapter 2 and verse 13, of the church at Pergamum. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. You never really want to dwell where Satan's throne is, right? There they are. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So you can hear of the kind of persecution they're facing from the world and the sort of temptation to compromise that they're facing with the world and its false teaching. Look at Revelation 2 and verse 19, the church of Thyatira. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who called a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. We'll get into who Jezebel is when we get to that letter sometime next year at the current pace. We'll get there. But I do think it's important that we recognize a kind of compromise that's coming. Look down at verse 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say... I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. See, you've you got to persevere. There's a temptation to compromise. There's a kind of trial of persecution or suffering. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1 and 2. And the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's the Holy Spirit and the seven stars of these. Yeah, I'll get into that later. So, I know your works. You have the temptation of being alive But you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So they're starting to compromise, verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Still some of you, a few of you are not compromising. Look at Revelation 3 and verse 9, the church of Philadelphia. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie... Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I've loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Or look at the church at Laodicea, verse 15. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So you can see in these letters the kind of persecution or trials coming from the world and the sort of temptation to compromise that's coming from within the church. This is our ever-present trouble in this old fallen creation. We undergo tribulations from the world. And we face temptations to compromise with the world. That's not just the problem of the church in the first century. That's our problem now. Thus, this letter is to the whole church in every age. It's a letter written to a church that needs to be comforted and warned. And both comfort and warning comes here. We need to be comforted with God's present care. We need to be warned about God's coming judgment. With that said, I want to turn to our second major point today, which I won't entirely finish. But I want to ask this question, what does the Lord say to his church? What does the Lord say to his church, this church, in these circumstances? Well, first, he comforts us, if you will. That's the first point. He comforts us. And second, he warns us. You guys have heard me say this each week. He comforts us and he warns us. Let's look first at the word of comfort. Look at Revelation 1.4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, there will be a kind of praise of Jesus that follows this, but I just want to slow down on this word of comfort. Notice the first words, grace to you and peace. Peace. Grace and peace to you. This is a typical blessing we see in New Testament letters. Paul gives this blessing, grace and peace to you. Matthew Henry explains it thus. Grace is God's goodwill toward us and his good work in us. His goodwill toward us that we see in Christ and his work on our behalf and his good work in us. Transforming work that is done in us by the Spirit. Peace is the sweet evidence and assurance of this grace. There can be no true peace where there is no true grace and where grace is peace will follow. The hearers of this letter need grace to persevere in the faith, and they need peace in the midst of the external afflictions that they are receiving from the world. They grace, persevere, peace in the midst of the external affliction they're suffering, and they're receiving that from the Lord. He is the one who speaks this word of grace and peace to them. So who speaks this word of grace and peace to them? It's our triune Lord. Look again, grace to you and peace from, first, this is from the Father who from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now we can say it's from God in a more generic sense, but the emphasis here is distinguishing the three persons. They all have one indivisible work, but they are distinguished. First from the Father, him who is and who was and who is to come. Grammatically, Greek this is really intentionally awkward. You wouldn't follow this preposition with the noun case that <laughs> that it comes in next. So I'm not going to get into that too much, but what's it doing? that John is intentionally give you an awkward grammar in the Greek so you slow down and catch he's referencing something for you. He's trying to catch your attention. And he's pointing you back ultimately to Exodus 3.14 and likely to some passages in Isaiah saying, the God who is, the God who tells Moses, I am. Who sent me to Israel? I am that I am. From the Father who is, he is the most perfect and absolute. He is of himself. He is in no way dependent or creaturely. He is eternal without beginning and without end. He's never in motion, never changing, never having potential to be realized. He is the one who is to come. Now, the emphasis here is interesting. He's not the one who will be. He is the one in the present tense who is to come. He's the one who is presently coming. In other words, the emphasis here is on the fact that he is the one who will consummate all history. The purpose of this threefold description of the Father is to emphasize that God is the Lord of history from beginning to end. Nothing is happening before him or after him. Nothing is outside of his sovereign providence. Nothing. Nothing the church faces in the first century is outside of his providential care. Nothing we face is outside of his providential care. He is the God of history. Second, we hear the letters from the Holy Spirit Look at the next phrase, "...and from the seven spirits who are before his throne." This is a way, a sort of symbolic way to speak of the Holy Spirit. He's spoken of as the seven spirits as if to say the sevenfold spirit. It speaks to his infinite and complete perfection. What am I talking about here? Think about the way he's spoken of as a sevenfold spirit in Isaiah 11. Verse 1, "...there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit." That's speaking of the coming Messiah. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, which we see happening clearly, especially in the book of Luke, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He's spoken of in this sort of sevenfold way. But in order to understand this language of Revelation, we really have to look at Revelation 4, 5, because while he's spoken of in a sevenfold way in Isaiah, I think he's really pressing us to Zechariah. So I want to look at Revelation 4, 5, quickly look over there from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder and before the throne were seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of god so the spirit of god is called the seven spirits of god or he's called the seven torches of fire now this actually is tied to the seven golden lampstands the lampstands have fire on them they have seven candles burning on them these seven torches of fire. So please note that the seven spirits are really mapping on to the seven lampstands or the seven churches. And the idea here is emphasizing that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in his temple, which is the church, and empowering their mission. So why do I say that? Because it comes from Zechariah. And I'll read this to you. You don't have to turn there. Zechariah 4, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. But Zechariah 4 and verse 1 and the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who's awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it. This language gets picked up in Revelation as well. One on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So it seems to be all be a picture of the Holy Spirit empowering the church to persevere in her mission. And in the faith. Not by might or power, but by the Holy Spirit. Third, not only the Father, but the Holy Spirit is blessing us, if you will. Thou, finally, Jesus Christ. Verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So you might start and say, why does he put Jesus Christ third? Usually it's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the way it's ordered. Though not always, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen is an example of where it's not happening, but usually it's that way. So why is Jesus last? Jesus is listed last not because he's the third person of the Trinity, really, and we've been lying to you all this time. He's listed last because the emphasis is going to be upon him throughout the rest of this text, really. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Notice this language. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Presently, Jesus isn't going to become the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And this is all picked up from Psalm 89. A psalm that sings about the promises made to David of his son who would sit on the throne forever as the messianic king. So listen to some of the language. The faithful witness. You ready? Psalm 89. And verse 37, like the moon, it shall be established forever. By the way, this is speaking of David's offspring and his throne that he'll sit upon. His offspring shall endure forever. Verse 36, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it, the throne of the offspring, shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. He is the faithful witness who's seated on the throne. The firstborn of the dead, Psalm 89 and verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn of the dead, the resurrected one. He's the one who brings in the new creation. And verse 27, the last phrase, the highest of the kings of the earth. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. In other words, the promise of the Davidic king who would rule and reign forever upon the earth is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the king on Zion, God's holy hill, whom we must kiss and whom we must take refuge for blessing. So God's word of comfort is coming from our triune Lord, as will his warning come from our triune Lord, who is the sovereign ruler of history, who is the one who dwells with us, his church, and empowers us to persevere, who is the Lord of all the kings of the earth. That's the vision he's trying to get you to get a hold of. We'll pick up the rest of it next week. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for your word and its truth for this word of comfort and warning that we as a church are receiving from our triune Lord, from you who is the sovereign of history, from your spirit who dwells with us and empowers our mission and our perseverance in the faith, and from your son who's seated on the throne, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. May we look to him and not to ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.